2: venison.com and use promo code bear for twenty percent off your first order. You know what my favorite text is: a waypoint and the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey. The list on the Onyx Hunt app features for chasing turkeys is long, but knowing exact public and private boundaries and land ownership details will help you find more places to hunt, whether that's on public or private. I'll be toting the Hunt app through the spring woods in a few states this year. And I recommend you do the same if you want more turkeys on your table. Also, Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BearGrease to receive twenty percent off your membership at OnyxMaps.com/hunt
3: this spring. One time that I described him as, as six foot six, and in. Perfect physical condition, a slender but powerful man, and uh, that could outwalk anybody on their best saddle horse in any kind of terrain.
2: On this episode of the Bear Grease Podcast, we're heading into the American West to meet a rancher midway through his ninth decade on planet Earth, and he still rides his mule every day. He's known as one of the nation's best dry ground mountain lion hunters. The southern border of his property is Mexico. He plays a little fiddle and he did some unconventional roping in an Academy Award winning movie. But that's just the flashy stuff. We'll hear a wild story that involved a helicopter rescue, but mainly we'll glimpse into the life of a true American cowboy named Warner Glenn. I had expectations of who this man would be, but they were scattered in the desert when I met the real Mr. Warner. This is part one in our series on the life of a living legend, Warner Glenn. You're not going to want to miss this one.
4: He always kept up with his dogs afoot, which he did. One day, this young man asked him, he said, how do you do that? And Dad said, well, I just got slower dogs. (laughs) (laughs)
2: My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who lived their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear. American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. Guys, we've got an exclusive Bear Grease discount code for FHF gear. That's Fish Hunt Fight Gear. I've been using their products for the last year and I love carrying my gear in a chest rig or my binos in their bino harness. It's easier and more accessible than a backpack And it doesn't get in the way when I'm riding my mule. For a limited time, you can head over to fhfgear.com forward slash bear grease. And listeners to this here podcast get a discount on purchases for your FHF Gear system. And you can see how I build my gear system. So go to fhfgear.com forward slash bear grease for a special code if you're buying stuff from FHF Gear. Check it out. Fish hunt fight FHF Gear. I arrived at the Malpie Ranch in Southeast Arizona a few hours before the glowing sunset blanketed the desert. If I'm being honest, I've rarely been more impacted at a first meeting. He was feeding his hounds, and I was greeted with a wide smile and a warm demeanor. I was a stranger to him, but a more genuine and gritty handshake I have never felt. I was invited to get in the side-by-side and we rode five miles west to a remote, generator-powered well. So what is that pump doing? It's pumping water yep. into these? Yeah.
1: It fills this tank and it's full all the time. The overflow is what fills this. That way if I have a float get knocked off or something, it, or a line break, it'll drain this one, but I have that and all that And this just
2: waters that. all the cattle on this side of the ranch? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Mr. Warren, how old are you?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm eighty-five. Eighty-five. Yeah. So still working.
2: Well, ten hours, twelve hours a day. I tell you, I've been, I've been lucky.
1: I sure have. I can still saddle my horse and ride, and I tell you, and that's good enough as long as I can do that. I can get something done. You know, but the saddle's getting heavier every year. (laughs) And, And the hills are getting higher.
2: Warner Glenn is six foot six, slender, and wiry like American barbed wire, the expensive kind. He's wearing a faded salmon colored button up shirt, and his t shirt showing through the neck reveals a tattered collar. His cowboy hat is straw and stained with sweat and dirt. He's an old man. But his eyes are as bright blue as you'll ever see. I find that with age, sometimes a man's eyes brighten, almost like they've been bleached by the sun. We made it back to the ranch house, which is quite literally a museum of the West, replete with art, Native American artifacts, photography, old guns and saddles and antlers. But the dominant theme is beautiful photos of hounds and mountain lions photographed on Warner's hunts and a huge painting of a jaguar. More on that later. We had dinner with Warner's daughter Kelly, who we'll meet later, and her daughter Mackenzie and some other friends helping on the ranch.
1: Thank you, Lord, for this food and thank you, Lord, for the guidance and safety you've given us today. I'm pleased. Watch over through the night and give us all a good night's rest. Amen.
2: I'd heard about Warner Glenn for almost two decades, and I knew it was time to go see him. He's known in the hound world as one of the best dry ground mountain lion hunters in the nation. Today, he's probably the oldest active mountain lion hunter left. Later, we'll explain what a dry ground lion hunter is, and that knowledge is very important. But in short, I'll tell you that it's one of the most demanding styles of hunting that there is. Warner has lived a storied life of a true American cowboy. Over the next few podcasts, I hope to do the man and his family partial justice in describing their way of life, their character, and their humility. Rarely have I seen the like. It's been many moons since Mr. Warner played his fiddle, but he was kind enough to break it out on my request. After a short night and a 5 a.m. breakfast, we headed to the kennel and the mule barn. We're going on a ride. How many dogs do you have, Mr. Warner?
1: 16. 16 dogs. Yeah. And one or two good ones. <laughs> I can <laughs> buy that. So these are
2: primarily walkers, but they're mixed breed dogs. You've got a yeah. little yeah. bit of black and tan. Some most, of them look kind of dark.
1: Most, you, most of them have a little... Something else in them, a little bit of blue tick. And, uh, but mo- mostly just walkers. Walk.
2: I can start putting collars on dogs if you tell me which ones to do.
1: You can put that one on him, but don't it. turn him out. Don't turn him out.
2: His dogs are meticulously cared for, the kennels are clean, and the dogs obey Mr. Warner's every command. Well, tell me about that. What's the name of the dog you said was the best dog you got?
1: Hook. Hook.
2: Hook. Why is he the best dog you've got?
1: He's good at everything. He's a good cold trailer, he's a good straight dog, and, and he'll move out and catch one. How old and, is he? Uh, that's the trouble. He's 12. Oh wow. Yeah, wow. still going though. Yeah, he'll be alright this winter, but this will probably be his last winter. Oh. Yeah. Well he and I might go out together, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't count on it. Yeah, he's, he's one of the best ones old on hook kids. And that's his full brother right there, and he's not worth it to. Is that right? Yeah, litter mate. Litter yep. What? Yep. So what are we going to do this morning? Well, we're just going to ride. We're just exercising these dogs. I do this probably four times a week and try to, do, to go about eight or ten miles with them. And they keep their feet in condition, yeah. hardened up, and, and fairly... In good shape,
2: (laughs) Mr. Warner. You're 85 years old, and you you're still riding a mule. That's pretty uh, unique. How many miles a year do you think you ride?
1: Oh my word, I have no idea. I
2: heard him say that you ride. You probably ride 2,500 miles a year on horseback or mule. No
1: no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. I I ride every day, somewhere. Mm -hmm. Unless I have to go you know, the, the town or something for some reason. You ride every day. I, I, I try to either work in cattle or keeping these dogs in shape or hunting, yeah. you know, that type of deal. Yeah.
2: Mr. Warner saddles a 16-hand mule named Vivian, and he instructs me to ride a shorter strawberry roan mule. He gets on the big bay with the agility of a man 50 years his junior, and I'm not kidding. His mount on the mule was smooth natural and effortless. We head out of the ranch house with 16 white-spotted walker dogs canvassing the landscape in front of us. My questions and his stories flow almost non-stop on our two-hour ride through the open country.
1: Lonesome's that white dog right behind me. She's a really good cold trainer a good white dog. Oh, she's a good dog, but not too good at getting around. Okay, that was Clump and the- a fella, Johnny Clump, a, a good friend of ours and also a lion hunter, he gave me that dog as a pup. And that doggone pup would do nothing to follow my mule around until he was about a year and a half old. I mean, the other dogs would be trailing lions and he'd just stay with right. And so one day we had trailed a lion into a big old bluff and couldn't find it and a guy that was helping us, a cowboy, Tommy Todd, he and I were looking at some blood splattered in spots on the on a rock here at the base, this bluff. And I said, yeah, and that, it looks like whatever it was went right up. And I pointed to the right, and that little old female line was right there, about 30 feet from us. Mm. And she, as soon as we made eye contact with us, she just bailed out of that bluff, r- r- running in went off the mountain and ran right square over old clump, just cannonballed old clump down down the hill. And he got up and went to squalling, and he ran, he ran that line up in the bottom of a big old canyon there and treated And from that day on, he was one of the best dogs I've ever had. And that I mean, just like it switching a light bulb on. So once in a while, there's hope for those... Duds, uh, you think are duds. (laughs) Most of the time, they're always a dud. But he did. He made one of the best doggone dogs I've ever had from that day on. Old Clump. Old Clump. He got by Give him a
2: chance, Clump. (laughs) We gain some elevation and overlook a rough section of tall, pointed mountains. When in an unfamiliar place, I never take for granted my own ignorance of it. Mister Warner interpreted the landscape for me.
1: Okay, this, from right here, you can see the, this valley up through here, all of these small hills you're looking at it were cinder cones or volcanoes, and, uh, and going south into Mexico, too. So this would have been a pretty wild place like several thousand years ago when all this was forming. You know, it it wouldn't have been too
2: (laughs) too good of a place. Tell me what the name of your ranch is and what it means.
1: Okay, we call it the Malpai Ranch, and that, uh, it's derived from the Spanish word malpais, malpais, which means uh, untillable land, bad land. Mm -hmm. It's untillable, and that's because it's too rocky for farmland. It's pretty good cow country, though, but they better have good feet on them because they darn sure get sore-footed yeah. in a country like this. That, good lion country, too. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. Some of this good line country land, it's debatable on how that wall that they build is gonna, it, it, no doubt it's gonna break up some of the wildlife corridors, but uh, it's not continuous. I mean, the is are still open, and, and it's a good wildlife corridor that um, came out. We'll see. We'll see what the future holds.
2: I wanted to ask Mr. Warner about his connection to the land and how his family got here. Here's what he said, Mr. Warner. You've been in Arizona. Your whole life. You were born in 1936. That's correct. Tell me about your upbringing, your mom and dad, kind of how your family came to this part of the world.
1: Uh, okay, my granddad, he came out here in 1896 from Texas. Uh, they had a little dirt farm right south of Abilene. There was 11 kids in the family, and they mm. were the two oldest, that Will and Ira. Ira is my granddad. Mm. And uh, it was their job to get up early in the morning and go feed the, the two plow horses. My great-granddad, JJ Glenn, he went in and he told the boys. he said, Will, says it's time to get up and go feed those horses and then come back and get breakfast so they'd be ready to start plowing at, at daylight. Mm. And old Will, he nudged, Ari nudged, Will, and they went back to sleep. So <laughs> JJ went in there about five minutes later. They were both sound asleep, <laughs> snoring again, so he walked outside, and they had big barrels catching rainwater off of the roofs, and mm. they were—they were, they always had water in them. There was a coat of ice on that water. Mm. He got the wash pan and scooped a big pan of that ice water out, went in there, and jerked the cover it back, and thrown it on those boys, and they went <laughs> and fed the plow horses. <laughs> and old Will, he went to saddling one of them up, and Iris said, Will, what are you doing? And he said, I'm leaving here, and I'm never coming back. Mm. He, he was 18 at the time my granddad was 15 and he did it and he did he your grandfather's brother, brother. Your okay. my grandfather stayed there and went to plow in the fields but they didn't hear from will for four months mm. and he came down here and he rode up through that half moon valley and he rode up and a lot of this country at that time were homesteaded already especially in the valleys yeah but the mountains weren't so he rode up in this is south in the terry mountains and he rode up that half-moon valley, and the grass was just thick and dragging the stirrups of his saddle. And he went to Wilcox, and at that time they had a telegraph line, mm. and he sent his dad a wire, and he said, Dad, if you want to come to some of the best cow country you'll ever find, you ought to come to Arizona Territory. That's what it was mm. at that time. And J.J. J. did. He brought the whole family out, and that's what brought him out. Wow. <laughs> Cold pan of water. Cold pan of water
2: <laughs>
4: got him but moving. They,
1: and they homesteaded there. At what we call High Lonesome Canyon in the south end of the Cherokee. J.J. homesteaded there, and my my granddad Ira he homesteaded about three miles north of there in what they call Hunt Canyon.
2: I want to read an excerpt from the author Stan Steiner's book titled "The Ranchers." It might give us a window into something that's hard to understand unless you've seen it or have lived it. Here it is. One thing that ranchers seemed to have in common was a sense of place, a place on earth. It was not so much that they owned a place on earth, that the place on earth they owned was where their ancestors were buried, where they grew up and would die, where their children were born. They were part of that earth. And their feeling came from more than simply owning, buying, and selling the earth. It went deeper. End of quote. The Glens connection goes deeper. I saw this quote inside of a photography book titled The North American Cowboy, a portrait by a man named Jay Dussard. Mr. J is 84 years old, and he has dedicated his life to photographing the landscapes and cowboys of the western United States. He only shoots black and white, and his images are meticulously crafted in composure and lighting. They're stunning. He has multiple photography books. Another one is called Open Country, which I've learned is a cherished phrase and descriptor of the land in this part of the world. In the said book, Mr. J described open country. Keep in mind that these words are written by a man who interprets the world through shape, color, and images. These are Mr. J's words. Open country, my kind, does not mean endless plains. Plains alone are too much like the endless sea for this landsman. I crave relief, changes of level, substantial reference points in a landscape that is vertical as well as horizontal being earthbound is completely satisfying from a rim rock high enough to overcome the spherical earth's disappearing act it is a mesa or a mountain a hundred miles distance that defines the sculptural reality that give perspective to the intervening ridges rifts bajadas, and drainages surrounding this with clouds of monumental proportions lit at a low angle from 93 million miles, and your photographic potential may even surpass postcard. At age 23, I finally realized what I'd been missing. Space, magnificently articulated by form, relief, light, and unbelievably clear atmosphere, took on a new sense of continuity. I simply wanted to live on this grand piece of sculpture. I wanted to be like a little ant or microbe crawling around on its wondrously complex surface. End of quote. Jay headed west, and one of the first acquaintances he made was with Warner and Marvin Glenn. Listener, take note that I'm holding a sun-faded mountain lion skull with the date November 22, 1963, inscribed on it. Here's Mr. J with an interesting story.
3: Well, I got so lucky that I discovered Warner Glenn and the the Glenn family, Warner and Wendy Glenn were so generous to bring me into their lives, into their world, and they treated me so wonderfully. And they put me on the payroll at the prevailing wage of $7 a day. Now, Warner and his father, Marvin Glenn, they were, had a, a hunting business. They would guide hunts for, for uh, mountain lions, mm-hmm. primarily what they were known for. And since I was working at the ranch, they had booked a hunt with a couple from Sierra Vista. And they said, well, you you can just go uh, join us on the hunt, and you can kind of babysit the the clients. Everybody was riding mules but me. And he had the clients, and, and we split up so we could cover more country uh, in fairly short order. Uh, Warner saw a lion track on the ground. He said, "He said uh, I don't have time to show you this, and I couldn't see a thing." Mm-hmm. And he says, "It's a four-year-old female, and we're going in the right direction." Mm. So we were on on a on high ridge and going in the direction that the, the lion had taken. And then suddenly we came to a, a place where the ridge dropped off and it was nothing but, but slick rock and boulders to get down into the canyon where this lion had gone. And Warner said, you'll never... Be able to make it down there, and, and I'm running with my good mule, Mochomo, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, try and get down there into that canyon, work your way down easily into that canyon, and he said, I'll see you later, and he <laughs> touched a spur to Mochomo, and they just flew down down that slick rock. Mm. It was the most amazing thing that I'd ever, ever seen. Mm. And so, uh, Machomo's steel sho- shoes were trying to grip the rock and s- striking sparks. And they got down to the lower level, down by, where I couldn't see them again. And there, here they
2: there they came out o- at the bottom. Took
3: off on a on a lower elevation, and then Machomo just leaped into the next. Drop mm. off. It was it was spectacular. Mm-hmm. This is a skull of that four-year-old. So y'all caught female. the lion
2: female. Yeah. Now tell me about the the date on okay. that skull. So on on pencil here it says November twenty-second, nineteen sixty-three.
3: That's right, and that's a date that a lot of people with a little age on them will remember because that's the date that President John Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Mm. And we were about the last people in the civilized world who had known about the tragedy that wow. took place in Dallas, Texas. We were, it was way after dark when we got out of the mountains and a, a rancher came through his place and he said they, they killed the president today. Mm. How did
2: that impact you?
3: Well, it was it was shocking and I think it made me remember that I had voted for Nixon and <laughs> voted against Kennedy but
2: you can tell something about a person when you learn where they were when a monumental event happened. It's a random one-time sampling and Mr. Warner was on a flashy mule hunting mountain lions. I asked Mr. Jay to describe Warner Glenn. This is what he said.
3: I think one time that I described him as, as six foot six and in perfect physical condition, a slender but powerful man, and uh, that could outwalk anybody on their best saddle horse in any kind of terrain. Mm. That's my description of him.
2: I want to jump back to Mr. Warner as he describes the foundation of their family's lion hunting.
1: So I grew up there. We call it the Jay and it's in the south, south end of the church House, and that's where I was raised. And My dad was there, and at that time, we were raising our own horses and colts mm-hmm. and breaking our own horses. He was. I was just a little old boy. The lions would kill those colts. He couldn't hardly raise a colt there because the lions were killing them. And also, they were killing a lot of calves, mm. too. So he got his first uh, lion dog, a red bone hound, out of a, a guy down in a valley called El Frida. And he took that uh, hound up there, and that's when he first started lion hunting, was mm. 1936. 1936. Yeah. And then you went on your
2: first lion hunt when you were six years old in 1942.
1: Yeah, I think it was 42. That was the first line. Uh, I'd been with him on a few tracks before, but never caught anything, but... Yeah, uh, we did catch a line that day. Wow! It was a big old Tom. It's a long day. We left early that morning. The dogs picked up that track, and we trailed that all day. We caught that line just just about sundown. But we were about nine miles south of the ranch, so we got back at eleven that night. It was a long mm. day for first <laughs> <end>. <laughs> for a six year old. Yeah, uh, he and then he took his. First, he continued to hunt, but it cost quite a bit, even in those days, to get a pack of hounds together and feed them. And, mm-hmm. and the ranches, the cattle ranches we owned and operator, considered small ranches in this area, mm-hmm. he had probably 150 mother cows. So yeah. to increase his income a little bit, he started taking the hunting clients. Yes. And the first hunting client he took was in 1948.
2: Marvin, Warner's father, would become well-known as a mountain lion hunter and renowned guide. He began lion hunting in the 1930s and started an outfitting business in 1947. He was known for a charming personality and his unusual hospitality. His wife, Margaret, was an integral part of their ranch and business. It was said that she, quote, did everything with infectious enthusiasm, the type of enthusiasm that makes people enjoy your company. Well, this is actually a quote from a book written about Warner. I hadn't told you about that yet. The book is titled The Life and Times of Warner Glenn, A Glimpse into the American West, written by Ed Ashurst. I believe the enthusiasm that Ed wrote about for life is still evident in this family today. To understand more about Mr. Warner's upbringing, I couldn't overlook a peculiar streak of good fortune that of all places came from Hollywood. I bet you weren't expecting that. Here's the story. When when you were 15 years old, you and your father Marvin were in a movie, you roped a lion yeah. on a on a movie
1: that won an Oscar. And now dude. They wouldn't even let you film that. Right, right, right. You know, because we weren't using any tranquilizer or anything like that. We we would just... (laughs) rope him and pull them out of the tree. Of course, you have to have your dogs all tied yeah. back out of the way because you're going to get something hurt. Because that lion, uh, on the when he hits the ground on the end of that rope, he's everywhere. and Somebody's got to go in there and get him by a hind leg or a tail. Yeah. Now, they they kind of choke down a little bit. And somebody, once you get them stretched out like that, then you just take your time and get a rope <laughs> on the feet and pull them back and something in their mouth. We tied, tied up quite a few. And the reason we were doing that was either for a movie or... It was for a zoo. We had zoos right. that had a, or you, it.
2: You, I read where you and your father gave a lion to the Bakersfield, California Zoo.
1: Several of those lions ended up in zoos, which, which really is the worst thing you can do to a wild mountain lion. Yeah. Really. I mean, yeah, nowadays. Yeah, yeah, I mean, at that time, we didn't think much of it, but and it was. It was something we, we did, we didn't think we were doing the wrong thing. But over the years, you you kind of say, well, how would you like to be stuck stuck in the yeah. me, You know, because I'm used to free life, yeah. and, and so are those lions. Yeah.
2: Some people may think they're cool or that they're cowboys. And if they've got a story that will top roping a wild mountain lion out of a tree when they're 15 years old for a Disney movie, yep, I said Disney— I'll buy him an Angus ribeye steak and a beaver felt hat. Mister Warner went on to describe how this movie impacted their lion hounds for decades to come.
1: And a fellow by the name of Larry Landsberg came out and got us to help him film that. It wasn't really a story about a hound that had got that came across the Mexican border. And Disney actually they brought a walker hound, tree and walker hound that was nine months old. A fellow by the name of Jay Sisler had trained the dog. This mm. is nine month hound pup, you might say. Yeah. And that son of a gun took well, I mean he just did everything that we asked for him in, in the movie. Yeah. I mean yeah, he did and, and it's kind of a cute little story. Uh Rex Allen narrates it. But anyway, he went on to win the Academy Award wow. that year for the best live-action short. It was okay. a short, a 20-minute short that showed me the okay. feature film. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's something. Before that picture, we most of all our dogs were black and tan, or red bone, blue tick, mm. uh, you know, red tick, that type, of, just the old English breeds, and good dogs. I mean, we had some good son-of-a-gun. And then when we saw that walker that, that they trained, it was a, walk, a tree and walker. Out out of somebody right there in your country. Uh I'm not sure. So when the movie was over, Daddy tried to, they called, in the the movie, the dog is called Paco. That's his name in the movie. So he tried to buy old Paco, and, and they wouldn't sell him. They, they mm. said, no, oh, we, we might need him for this and that and that, which they did later. They came back and filmed something for that uh, Disney Presents at Night. Okay. They, they came, and they had to do it all. They had to film all of it while he was a pup. That, so they wouldn't sell him Paco. So he said, you know I'm going to try to give him. He bought a female out of Finley River Chief. Okay. Uh, out of Missouri I think yeah and then he bought a male out of house in Bali okay and two the male was two and the female was a yearling so we got him and started raising pups and both of those dogs ended up being good They were mm. own, they're, those were just those were coon, talking about. Coon hound stock you bet and 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 they made wonderful land dogs and mm. we raised, we raised pups out of those for eight or ten years and that's one thing some of those pups are scattered all over the country. And some of the dogs nowadays are still related. They wow. go back to houses in Billy, Philly River, Chief, anyway. any yeah. back.
2: It's hard to believe, but the Hollywood hound that came from the east was one of the most impressive young hounds Marvin and Warner had seen. They tracked it back to Missouri and built a line of lion dogs with some of Paco's relatives. A good lion dog is wherever you find him. As a parent, nothing keeps me up at night more than the idea of something happening to my children. But if something happens to me and I'm not around to protect them, that's a true nightmare. Having term life insurance for myself is crucial because I can rest easier knowing my children and loved ones can have some financial support even if I'm not there. That's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. Having life insurance just gives me that extra confidence throughout the day, knowing that my family will be financially cared for if something bad happened to me. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You can be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash bear. That's meetfabric.com slash bear m-e-e-t fabric.com slash bear policies issued by western southern life assurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions montana knife company was founded by josh smith one of the world's most experienced master bladesmiths he's been making knives for 30 years made in the usa and manufactured locally in montana The knives come with a multi-generational warranty and free sharpening. Designed, tested, and built by hunters, MKC is a hunting knife company first and foremost. They have the sharpest knives out of the box and the easiest knives to sharpen. And that is the dadgum truth. You better be careful with them when you get them. They are sharp. MKC is a fast growing company. They just hired their 55th employee and are looking to hire about 50 more in the next year or so. I've carried a lot of these Montana knives And the one that I like the most is their Speed Goat, which is a lightweight hunting knife, just the right size. MKC knives sell out within minutes of being released. So head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com. They have new knives for sale every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So check their website and sign up for their text and email alerts. That is the best way to find out when they have knives available. Use code BEARGREASE10 for 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people
0: The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater.
2: I asked Mr. Warner about his connection to the Beast of Burden, of which he is quite fond. I'll give you one guess about what my next question is about. Well, I want to talk about mules. Just give me your spiel on
1: mules and horses in cattle work here on the ranch, we like to use horses. They're a little more responsive and uh, that type of thing. We just, uh, Although we use mules a lot of times, we don't have the horses up if we have to work in cattle. But in hunting, yeah, my dad and I used a lot of horses when we first started hunting. early In the 40s and early 50s and 60s, we, we were horseback most of the time even hunting because we were raising all those horses in the mountains. Yeah. and We were breaking them ourselves, so they were good mountain horses. It's kind it's hard to find a good mountain horse now, but we want to use mules. We use mules all together now when we're hunting. They, they take care of themselves in, in that rough, rugged country. They hardly ever get crippled, ever hardly ever get hurt. If they do happen to fall with you, and I'm not saying a mule won't fall with you, they will. I've had them fall with me. But usually, when they get in a real bad place and fall, or get in a tight situation, they they'll kind of relax and wait a minute. They don't panic. Where a pa- a horse will usually panic and go to lunging or kicking and get frantic. Well, you might find one occasionally that would, but most mules will settle down and take it, kind of ease out of a tough situation. And in doing that, they allow you time to step out of the middle of the trouble. Yeah. Too, they're not they're not lunging and fighting. Uh, and I tell you, when you get it, when they go down with, if there's a pause, you better take advantage of it. You better get out of the way. I'm gonna remember uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you, hey, it,
2: you told me a statement today. You said. Uh, you said, we've had some good mountain horses, but I sure felt sorry for them. Oh, oh, yeah.
1: Well, a lot of the old-timers around said, Warner, why do you ride mules all the time, hunting rather than horses? And I said, well, to tell you the truth, I just, you know, I just don't feel as sorry for a mule as I do a horse. <laughs> <laughs> I figured, uh, can I figure that mule's going to take uh, him and me both or she right. and me? I'm not saying there's not some good mountain horses still around. Some of the hunters still use horses quite a bit, but by and large, most of the the mountain lion hunters in our area use mules. You're using now, mules most of the time. Tell me yeah.
2: about uh tell tell me about your mule Machomo.
1: Well, I tell you, yeah, okay. and he came out of Mexico Well at that time that this would have been like fifty six, fifty seven, fifty eight, nineteen, fifty six, fifty seven, fifteen. We were doing a lot of hunting in the northern part of Sonora yeah. in, in these mountains that you can see from here south of us. And uh, they had a mule called Motobo down there that one of the wranglers down there was riding. So when we came out of there, the, the rancher was making Armando Varela. He was making some really good horses. He, he had mm-hmm. bought some real fancy studs. And he said, for payment for catching some of the lions down there, he said, Warner, I want to give you one of these good horses. And I said, man, I said, no. I said, I would really rather have that bay mule called <laughs> <laughs> And he said, you would? And I said, yeah. So he gave me the mule. Mm. He said, that's where he came from. And he's one of the best mules I've ever ridden. Really, back. He was a little... Wild and rank at first. He, I got. Really? He kicked me a time or two, really bad. But he got over that when he got about 18, 19 years old. It <laughs> <laughs> took a while. It took a while. What was your favorite mule of all time? Uh, well, I, I tell you, I, I've had a lot of. Yeah. But, but uh, of all time, if I had my pick for one to stay with, I had a white mule called Snowy River. Mm. And, and uh, he would, well, he would do anything you wanted him to do it, and he would do it good. Mm. And he was willing. He never balked. I mean, he was good in rough country. You could go ahead and cow on him. I, I mean, carry you, a lion. You could work cattle on him or do it. He, just a good all-around mule. But carry, he'd, he'd carry mule. a
2: lion, too? I, oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, he'd carry a lion. Yeah. yeah it's, it's some Most of our, I tell you, they're not afraid of a lion as much as they are a bear. It mm-hmm. seems like our mules here. Of course, they don't. We don't bear hunt much. It's just yeah. very rare that they're even around. I've had. I, I'm riding. A, you'll see her in the morning, Vivian. Uh, she's she's one of those. Three.
2: How big a mule do you like?
1: I, I don't. I don't like them too big. I, I like a mule that weighs. Them. Probably ten fifty to twelve fifty. These
2: are pretty big mules you've got, though. Yeah, I mean, there's some of them more. Sixteen so, hands, probably. Are they that yeah, tall? Yeah, a
1: couple of, them, couple of them probably are. But
2: you're a big, you're they're, a big guy.
1: They're, they're a little bigger. They're, they're, those are good mules, the ones we got now. But I'd rather have a little smaller one. I'd rather have one. Uh, Snowy River would probably, he'd have probably weigh ten fifty. Okay. Uh, something like that. W- yeah. When he was drawn down, yeah. he was drawn down to good condition. Yeah. Ochoma would have been too.
2: Mr. Warner's love of mules is music to my ears. And as you know, I'm fond of the animals too. But my fondness should not mean that much. But coming from him, it should mean a lot. Warner's not on Instagram trying to look cute and flashy. Dang, I wish he was. No, I don't. It's now mid morning, and we've ridden to one of the highest points on the Malpai Ranch. Our mules are facing uphill towards the west. Mr. Warner shifts around in his saddle and points to the south. The life of the glens can't be understood without a realization of where they live. The landscape defines their existence. The southern boundary of the ranch is the Mexican border, and he's got some wild stories. So those mountains are in Mexico.
1: Yeah, all of this country you're looking at right south of us here are in old Mexico. That big range you see right there, kind of southeast of us, is the starting of the Sierra Madre Mountains in Mexico, and they're continuous clear to Mexico City. I can I can see the wall down there. Oh yeah! <laughs> yeah that's where wow! That line is. You can see it on that side going out through the hills, and then that side going into the mountains. So, just used to it was just a. Uh, uh, right a barbed wire just, fence. Just a barbed wire fence. Yeah. When we bought the ranch, it was just a, it was an eight-strand barbed wire fence, and it had a steel t post every 12 feet. So it was a pretty good fence, but it was old; it was wore out. We were mending the fence all the time. So that, that, and then the first thing they did was build a vehicle barrier, and that was in the early 2000, of course. The vehicles could still get over. It. I mean, they would just ramp over it. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah.
2: You've had some encounters with—I mean, lots of encounters with
1: people carrying drugs over the border. Oh yeah. I tell you, Kelly and I probably have run into like twenty-five or thirty bunches in the mountains over the years yeah. that, that had drug, big bales right, right on them, and we just ride. I mean, you—you you come around the bend of the canyon, and they're nowhere to go, and they're right there. We just ride up to them, we always got our dogs, and we, we got guns, I mean, we got, we're, we've never been worried about, it. we've never been threatened by them, because it surprises them as much as it does us, and we, we get, I just talk to them in Spanish and tell them we're lion hunting and we're on our way, but yeah, but, it, but it, the looks on their faces sometimes, those drug mules they call them. It really, really, it's a big relief to them when they know we're not carrying a badge or something. But when we get away from them, we don't sure report those. Yeah. We, we turn those, button, and that's why the Border Patrol work with us so good. We've had a lot, of, I've run into quite a few carrying bales uh, uh, right through the ranch here. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we we found probably. Over over the years, thirty or forty bales that have been abandoned, and when we do, we don't pack them in. We I, I get the border patrol to take them and have them pick them up.
2: Well, I've I've been on this ranch less than 24 hours, and while we were driving into your ranch, the border patrol was pulling out of your driveway. With they told us six people they had picked up just yesterday. So that's common.
1: That's right. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of an everyday occurrence at least three or four times a week now.
2: Honestly, some of his stories, and there are some very specific ones in the book, remind me of Daniel Boone's encounters with hostile Indians in the backwoods. Mr. Warner has used his tact, genuine demeanor, and cultural understanding, he can speak Spanish, to get him out of trouble a lot of times. Speaking of trouble, I want to hear Warner and his daughter Kelly tell about the time they got into some big trouble in the backcountry hunting lions in 2015. And this is also a great place to introduce you to Kelly Glenn Kimbrough, Warner's daughter. She's worked on the ranch and in lion outfitting with her father for decades. She is an accomplished rancher and dry ground lion hunter herself. And honestly, we could be doing a whole podcast on her life. What an incredible lady. Luckily, we'll hear more about her in part two. These next interviews were done separately, but Kelly and Mr. Warner are telling the same wild story.
1: There's a mountain in the north end of the Pelton Actually, it's in the New Mexico side called Pratt Peak, and it is a a terrible, rough, bluffy son of a gun. And we had come over the top of Pratt Peak, and we had led down through some really bad rims of rocks and stuff. And I, and I told Kelly, she was behind me, and we had two, a couple behind us. And I told him, I said, I think we can ride from here on. So I got on my mule and was sitting there, and Kelly went to get on her mule. And she had stepped, she went on the uphill side just to, because it easier to get on. Here's
2: Kelly.
4: And it, there was about a couple inches of snow on the boulders and stuff. On our mules, we do it all the time. We get on the offside. If that's the uphill side, we get on the offside. Right. So I stepped up on a boulder and put my right foot in the stirrup to get on. And when I did, the boulder cr- was cracked from the freezing and thawing mm. and it broke off and it hit her on the back leg i had just it was literally the second day i started riding after having my shoulder rebuilt mm. so i didn't have my full strength and i was able to grab on to the saddle but my right foot was hung on the stirrup mm. so i was off hanging on it, it, it was gonna be a t- disaster and the mule has she lunged. is bailing off the mountain and it was frozen ground boulders. It was a terrible deal. And I knew it was going to hurt if I hit the ground. So I'm trying to hang on. And then she stepped, this leg was back here and she stepped right on it and it broke it in seven places. But what it Mm -hmm. did, it flipped it around backwards. But when she stepped on it, it jerked this foot out of the strip. Mm Hmm and it jerked me free well i was going so fast that they were watching dad and rick and heather the people that were with us they said i made like two full flips and then i hit a boulder with this side of my head and in those flips i remembered seeing my leg going by a point in the wrong direction
1: she looked up and she said dad my leg's broken and i said boy kelly it sure is and I, I mean, what can you say? It was it was pointed south, and she was heading north. You know, oh, it was mm. a bad deal.
4: There was blood spewing out. I had put like a three fifty seven bullet hole right here, and fractured this whole corner of my skull in one inch when oh, wow. I hit that rock. Wow! But it was just pouring blood, but it didn't hurt. Mm. This hurt, mm. and he said, "I know." And he grabbed my leg, and he said, "It was like a bag of."
1: Bones. It was just wow. loose. There was a man and his wife with us and the, the man, Rick, he, he got Kelly by the arms and held her there on the hillside just to help her stay, stabilize her so she wouldn't slide or roll any further down the mountain. I could see, I, I knew I had to straighten that leg. I mean, we were way up there. We knew we were going to have to have her evacuated somehow. So I went ahead and I told Kelly I'm going to straighten your leg, Kelly, and then we're going to splice it and we'll we'll immobilize it. So I I just pulled it out and pointed the toe the right direction. Yes. Yeah. I went ahead and cut four or five of those yucca poles into mm-hmm. a, a stalk that grows out of the yucca plant. mm mm-hmm. And cut them in about 18 inches, and then I took them down there and I had a roll of that electrician's tape in my saddlebag, and so we we got it. We got those. We used those stocks for uh, splints and taped them pretty tight with that electrician tape. And then we went. This was eleven o'clock in the morning, and this was de- this was last day of December, mm. and cold. We knew it. there was snow about an inch of snow on the north slope. We were on the north slope, wow. so it was slick, and the ground was a little frozen. It's it kind of an uncomfortable place.
4: Then we tried to get cell service. No service because we were in a basin on a peak. So it was all blocked.
2: What was your anxiety level, fear level? Well,
4: I hurt really bad. And I was laying, it was 27 degrees. I was laying there. The man was still holding me. I honestly thought they'd get me out of there pretty quick. I thought, I know I can't walk out of here. I wasn't panicked. And I never went into shock, which is amazing. The hounds kind of grouped around me. One of them, I didn't realize it, it was so much was licking blood off of me. And Warner and uh, Heather took off and hiked up to the top and got cell service. And then they started coordinating this rescue. Well, a rescue helicopter came within about an hour and they circled us and they left. Hmm. It was the winds and it was too dangerous. There was nowhere to land. Because it's in a steep,
2: rocky canyon. Yeah.
4: So in the meantime, when everybody knows us, just because we've been in this country for so long, The sheriff in Hidalgo County was talking, trying to get some help. And Border Patrol in El Paso, a pilot in El Paso was sitting in their coffee room or whatever. And they heard this, a woman had been hurt on a peak in southwest New Mexico. And that nobody could rescue her, helicopter-wise. And he said, I can. And he had just got back from Afghanistan. And there was a guy there that day, a Border Patrol supervisor mm-hmm. that wasn't a pilot he said i'll go with you and they loaded up in one of those little board patrol helicopters they flew to the mountain they got there about six hours after i'd been hurt because wow. all this took time wow they landed on a boulder 175 yards above us on the on a saddle and it was sundown already and warner had ridden off to the valley and gotten one of those basket stretchers how far were you we we back
2: in from the truck
4: we were like 3 or 4 miles from the truck. Okay. But it was terrible country. Yeah. Border Patrol got the coordinates. They started yeah. riding in on horses, hiking in. There was nine Border Patrolmen showed up there at this mm. and one came and they all knew us and one guy came right to me and he goes I'm not allowed to administer pain medicines, but I have some Advil. And I, so I took two. But then I was, I oh. was hurting. And wow.
2: So you're, you're laying there on the rocks for seven hours yeah. with no pain medication. Yeah. Busted face. <laughs> yeah. Broke and leg that's bad been broken set leg. by your dad.
4: Yeah. But Warner and Rick, about two or three hours into it, they dug up because literally we were like this angle. I mean, it was the whole time. You're just holding yourself. So they dug out some rocks and stuff and put a saddle blanket. And then I could sit. I could finally relax and be down and not be slight. And that poor man that was holding me had held me all that time. So when they did that, then I said, I told him, I said, Rick, I'm cold. I said, you're going to have to build a fire. Well, there was snow on everything. So tall, burns. It has a fuel in it, a mm. dead sotol plant, sacoista. These are things that we have out here. So he lit sotalls, and, and he, he'd light one right there by my feet, and so he got my feet warmed up. Mm. But the Border Patrolman, Dad rode up, and there's a picture, an epic picture that Rick took. Oh, it's a Life magazine kind of picture. It's Warner on a mule with that stretcher in front of him, riding up the bluffs behind him. And those border patrol kind of lined up waiting for him to get there. And they took the stretcher and they lifted me. They were awesome. And they put me in that basket stretcher. And then those guys, by now it was dark. And they carried me all the way up there. Never one of them slipped or fell. I mean, they just, they were a team. And they got me up there co-pilot he said okay ma'am he said you're not going to fit in our helicopter so he said we're going to stick you through sideways and he said we're going to put your head against the door and and then your legs are going to be sticking out in that for about (laughs) two and a half feet outside Mm. and so they tied me in with cargo straps and he held on to me and off we went
1: we had 11 people up on the mountain up on Pratt Peak to get off there. And we got everybody off there. We were back to our trucks and trailers probably at eleven o'clock. We got back here at 30 that uh, wow next morning. Yeah, wow, long day, long yeah. day. Bad. It could have been so much worse. So yeah, and Kelly, Kelly, she made it fine. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's just that is one of the times that Kelly got hurt. I don't to the <laughs> other the
2: More wild stories,
4: you say, Mister Warner?
2: That sounds interesting.
4: I got bit by a lion. Did that tell you that? No. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, so last so March 8th of 19 we're hunting at, in New Mexico. We tree this calf-killing lion in a stand of pine trees and the guy with us shoots him twice in the chest everything's good. And he falls out. Then the dogs pulled him downhill and they wrapped his body around a tree and it was kind of steep. And then he went limp. And you know how dogs will lie it around. They, they're all wanting to chew on it. Then it's a reward. So dad and I said, he's dead. Yeah, he's dead. He's dead. But I am a mispracticality. I didn't want him to drag him down the hill. So we'd have to pull him back up to skin him. So I put my foot on the back of his shoulders to hold him against the tree. And no kidding, he stands up, turns around, and I remember thinking, oh, man, his eyes are yellow. <laughs> He's looking, and then he just reaches out, grabs me by the side, jerks me down, and bites me right through the calf, slipped off the bone, did not break the bone, right through the meat. Well, Warner, <laughs> Mr. Fearless, Warner is... <sighs> wailing on him with his fists Mm. to get him to turn loose of me and the dogs have have gone ballistic because i i yelled when i hit the ground and he bit me and he lets go then he takes off and runs off and the dogs went and warner went and warner shot him point blank with his pistol well the poor guy with us had never been in on a lion or any of that first he says did you see him bite you and i'm like yeah I did. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm thinking he broke my leg. It hurt. I said, go help Warner. So I took off my shoe and rolled up my long underwear, and blood was everywhere. And I had 14 puncture wounds, the canines and the claws. So I put my foot against a tree and gently pushed. And my experiment was, if it moves, it's broken. Uh. And if it doesn't, so by the time they got up there, it hadn't moved. And I said, "Dad, it's just superficial." <laughs>
2: just superficial. Yeah. It was a Just mess. fourteen puncture wounds. It Don't was worry, a Dad. Mess. Let's go.
4: Well, ironically, we bandaged it up and stopped the bleeding, and went down and skinned the lion, and rode out an hour and forty-five minutes to the truck. And so they gave me a rabies shot in each puncture. Mm-hmm. They don't sew up puncture wounds, you know. It took 75 days for those to heal. But I drove back over there the next day. We caught two more lions in the next three days. I hunted. There was no pain.
2: Mm, And
4: we caught two more lions on that hunt. They were (laughs) calf killers.
2: On part one of this podcast series, we've just barely introduced the glens, and they've given us insight into their lifestyle, history, and some iconic family stories. Next episode, we'll dive in deeper into the craft of dry ground lion hunting, and we'll learn that Warner was the first person to document a live jaguar in the United States. He wrote a short book about it called Eyes of Fire. We're going to hear the whole story directly from him. I truly cherish the opportunity to highlight families like the Glens. In my opinion, Mr. Warner is the embodiment of a living legend, and we haven't even heard half the story. Later, we'll learn how he and his wife, Wendy, who has since passed away, helped start an influential conservation group called the Malpai Borderlands Group. You also haven't heard about the fist fight in his younger years that catalyzed a life altering change in Mr. Warner about how to deal with confrontation. Later in his life, he'd be known as a diplomat for the open country of Southeast Arizona. Here's what Kelly had to say in closing about her father.
4: We have a unique lifestyle. We have a unique family because we were raised to respect each other, to be cohesive, to collaborate, whether it was to collaborate with our family to get it done or to collaborate. So with changing of time and conservation becoming such a big deal, uh, you know, we are so blessed. Mackenzie is sixth generation. She will carry on the ranches. She wants to. We've given her every choice not to. What she's doing right now in her side business, we want her to be able to develop something that she can call her own. Yeah. Because until Warner's gone and then I'm gone, she will be under the umbrella. You know, she won't be the leader. However, Warner has gracefully let McKinsey and I take on more and more. Mm-hmm. And we do it respectfully. I know the answer. But I ask Warner. Mm-hmm. One thing I think is left out in a lot of families as they transition through the generations, a lot of times the elderly generation doesn't really give the next generation a lot of respect because they're still stuck in that in that mindset and they are still in power. Mm. And dad's pretty good at that. He's pretty there's now and then he'll he'll say, He'll say something real quick and forceful, and then he'll backtrack immediately and say, tell me the rest of the story. Because I know the rest of the story. It's like whether it was to do with the border or whatever was happening, I'm the one that's getting the emails, the phone calls. Mm-hmm. Dad has a great life. He's He goes and exercises his dogs. He does his ranch work. We kind of run interference
3: mm-hmm. with
4: with the way life is nowadays. Mm-hmm. As you know, there's so many issues. Mm-hmm. But I would just say something that's forgotten in a lot of families and is maintain your traditions and your the history of your family and the ethics and respect and morals of your family, your community, your environment, your landscape. Mm-hmm. Because we're only here for a short time, but we need to, when we leave... We need to be remembered as Warner will be as a legend. It's been a great life. I've been so blessed to have such a mentor. Yeah. And sometimes it's been really tough because I'm a woman in a man's world. Mm-hmm. Luckily, my dad has respected women and, yeah. their, and, and the fact that they can work equally hard. Like I said earlier, be your personal best. Mm-hmm. Do your best. And that's what Warner, that's all he asks of people, whether mm-hmm. it's clients or family or mm-hmm.
2: whatever. That's incredible. We did a, we just did an extensive podcast series on Daniel Boone. Yes. What's wild about the end of Daniel Boone's life? Boone lived to be 86 years old. They said when he was an old man, he hardly recognized the life that he had lived. And he was quiet and he was humble. And you would have thought he would have been this like proud, Boastful guy for all the incredible stuff he did in his life, and there was a woman, a family member, that said the old woodsman that had spent their life in solitude. When they were old, they were humble, they were meek. Yeah, I see that almost in your dad.
4: Exactly. There's because, a
2: humility that yeah. is unique that you would you would you would think that life would have built them up inside of their accomplishments, but it but it but it actually has made them more humble.
4: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And he'll tell, so young houndsmen will ask Warner. You know, he, we, we all, we've always said he always kept up with his dogs afoot, which right. he did. Right. One day, this young man asked him, he said, how do you do that? And Dad said, well, I just got slower dogs. <laughs> <laughs> humble. But, yeah, humble. Yeah, yeah, humble. And just like the example of that lead dog way up there, quietly going on, the old dog. We mm. have an old dog named Hook. And when you see Hook, 200 yards out there, quietly going on, that's a Warner. You know, that's an example of what Warner is.
2: I had never met nor spoken with Warner Glenn before I showed up in his barn lot. I knew he was a man of character and a man of the land. But what impacted me the most was something I wasn't expecting. It's a trait that the gunslinging John Wayne images of the Western cowboy typically don't embody, which is an authentic humility. Manhood is an interesting journey because we want to be bold and confident, which are both honorable traits, but we might be fooled into thinking that is supposed to be the dominant, most important feature of who we are as men. However, what Mr. Warner showed me in the very short time I was with him, that confidence and boldness flow out of humility and servanthood of those who you're around. What you wouldn't have seen when the recording devices weren't on was Warner Glenn putting away our dishes from the table, serving us food, taking genuine interest in our lives, and doing things for us he didn't have to do. One could argue that anyone could put on their best behavior for a guest, But I can tell you, there aren't two Mr. Warners. There's only one. And that is the definition of authentic. And that's what I want to be when I grow up. Again, I can't thank you enough for listening to Bear Grease. Don't miss part two of this series on Mr. Warner and Kelly. I have a feeling it's going to be better than the first. Please do me a favor and share our podcast with a buddy this week. Good hunting and keep the open country open. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right – Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule. And it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com slash grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash grease.
0: I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MeatEater for 10% off your purchase.